WMEX Quincy Boston, streaming at WMEXBoston.com. And on your smart speaker, just say, play WMEX. The greatest hits of all time are back. This is the all-new WMEX. WMEX Boston. Legacy Legal Live, hosted by Kendra O'Toole, Michelle Reed, and Elizabeth Caruso of Legacy Legal Planning is a show about discussing your estate plans, options, and answering your questions. Call in at 781-834-9639 and start your lifelong partnership covered by benefits that you've earned through proper legacy planning. Now here's your hosts, Kendra, Michelle, and Elizabeth. Good evening. Thank you for joining us on Legacy Legal Live. I'm Kendra O'Toole. I'm Michelle Reed. And I am Elizabeth Caruso. As a reminder, we are from Legacy Legal Planning, a law firm in Norwell, and we service clients in estate planning and elder law. Tonight, we are going to touch a bit on long-term care in a nursing home and some of the requirements in regard to Medicaid mass health. When we refer to MassHealth tonight, we are talking about Medicaid in regards to long-term care in a nursing home. So I'm going to throw it off to one of the ladies first tonight in regard to just a little background of what is Medicaid and when does it come into play for for a person? Uh, so Medicaid is, and like Kendra said, MassHealth here in Massachusetts, it is a federal program that is federally funded and is run by the state of Massachusetts. So um, Medicaid gives money to Mass, and the Mass decides within the federal parameters how they're going to dole out the money. So the way that Medicaid works here in Massachusetts is there is both community Medicaid, which means that you are receiving benefits while still living in your home, And then there is long-term care Medicaid where you're receiving benefits in a nursing home. Um, Both are for, or are available for people who are over the age of 65. Um, There's also Medicaid for people under 65. And like Kendra said, we are only going to talk about the Medicaid for long-term care nursing home patients, because that is what we pretty much focus on. the way it comes into play is really whenever someone needs to go to a nursing home. Um, the idea is that you want benefits to kick in as soon as possible because nursing homes in Massachusetts are really, really expensive. We're talking like fifteen, sixteen thousand dollars a month. So you don't want to be paying your hard-earned savings any longer than you have to and you want these benefits to kick in as quickly as possible. And so just generally a little bit more about kind of the application itself. And, you know, as Liz mentioned, it really is used when a person is now going into the nursing home, there is time to apply under the rules. Um, You know, it's not a matter of you're in the nursing home today or you're at the hospital today and you're in the nursing home tomorrow and the whole application needs to be complete. Although that is a trend that seems to be picking up a little bit that 
nursing homes are wanting to actually see an application submitted even before um, someone's transferred from the hospital. Um, yeah, and I think just to interrupt for a moment, the benefit of working with attorneys is we can we can we can push back because <laughs> uh, I think a lot of times, you know, for for various reasons, obviously nursing homes are 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 you know they they need to be paid right, uh, and they want to be paid. So I think that there's um, a urgency that leads to potential. I don't want to say scare tactics, but you know it it, it can get uh, you know it can feel like there's a there's a lot of pressure. Um, where it, it almost seems like you you're under the the understanding. I I need to get the application in right now, right now. They're saying I have to put it in right now. So there's there's something to be said about working with a professional who kind of knows the system. You know, has has dealt with folks like the nursing homes and the hospitals and things of that nature, and can advocate for you as well. Because you're you know if you've got someone saying you need to submit this application yesterday. You're not going to blink at that. You want your loved one to get some care. So um, to your point, and we've seen that a lot, when we say trending, we're saying, you know, we were in some telephone arguments, Kendra and Liz, last week. <laughs> right. Um, you know, we mm-hmm. were working with a client that had a loved one in a hospital, and that hospital just would not let go of the fact that those application, the application had to be in. And they wanted us to send it to numerous nursing homes. And we just don't see the need for that to occur. You know, we don't need someone's finances and personal information to be just floating around to numerous different nursing homes. And I ended up being able to reach out to one of the local nursing homes and confirmed that they actually had a bed available. And they were fine with doing the transfer and then having the time to put in a proper application. And so, as Michelle mentioned, the importance of working with an attorney that can speak to the nursing homes and to the hospital to really um, just get everything in order and make them feel comfortable because they're also concerned with how are we getting paid. And so, you know, making them feel comfortable with the fact that the family's taking action with the mass health application. Yeah, certainly. I kind of want to. Sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, I want to uh, jump back a little bit and kind of talk about how people pay for nursing homes. Um, so there's three ways to pay for nursing homes in Massachusetts. Um, you've got private pay, which is what I was talking about earlier, which is $15,000, $16,000 a month. Um, you have long-term care insurance, which people have usually as like um, – a benefit from their job or they were preemptive in you know purchasing this type of insurance usually a long time ago because by the time you need it it is prohibitively expensive or you qualify for medicaid and what we're going to be talking about is how to get you qualified for medicaid before you've spent all of your money on private pay is that, like the idea is to you know if you have to do a spend down, do it wisely. And if we can avoid a spend down and do some type of emergency planning, then we're that's the route that we should go. And we're really focusing on, you know, we talked about, I think it was actually last week, we had talked about the fact that there are times where we meet early on with people and try to paint the picture of this is how things look now. You think your loved one might need this care in a year or two or six months or whatever. And so it's kind of looking at the picture now and helping them prepare for what they need at that time frame. And 
So when Liz mentions spend down and doing that proper spend down and whatnot, we want you to come and work with an elder law attorney to go through that process. Do not attempt to spend down on your own or try to figure out. <laughs> I, I, we've had some clients that say, oh, we've been private paying for eight months because the nursing home told us that's what we needed to do when there were some other options and routes that they could have gone. So it really is worth reaching out and talking to um, an elder law attorney for what the proper avenues are for spend down depending on the situation. Yeah, I think there's, I mean, again, going back to having an advocate, having an attorney, of course, you know, so much in the legal field is, you know, can you do it on your own? Sure. Should you? No, it's not advisable. And in this case, you know, the nursing homes are are, are going to be more than willing to say, sure, you can spend it on private pay and that will get you qualified. And that's not wrong. Um, will that get them qualified? Sure, because it's permissible spending. But uh, to your point, and, and to drill home your point very much so, um, there are other options where the nursing home could potentially get, you know, get theirs, but also there are some avenues to protect some of that as well. So um, to give you an idea on what a mass health application looks like, um, it's going to ask about your entire life your financial life, um, literally everything that you own. Um, it's gonna ask about your income, your your house, if you have one, um, or multiple pieces of real estate, if you have more than one. Um, it's gonna ask about every single bank account you have, um, all the bank accounts that you closed in the last five years. It's gonna ask about retirement accounts, um, any investment accounts that you have, any stocks, annuities, uh, savings bonds, literally anything that you have of value is going to go into this application. And like I um, said it, about the accounts that were closed in the last five years, anything that you gave away in the last five years that was of value could potentially be held against you. It sounds like I'm like reading the Miranda rights in the law and order. Exactly. <laughs> Um, but all of it is going to be scrutinized by MassHealth to see if you pass their test to qualify for benefits. And um, you need to, as part of the application process, supply all of the backup evidence for all of these questions. So if you are somebody who even has a couple of bank accounts, retirement account, you know, you maybe closed some things in the last couple of years, you could potentially have five, six to up to 10 accounts that you have to give five years worth of bank records for. Um, there is a way that if it's part of a mass health application that you can get the fee waived from your bank to get the records, but it's still an enormous amount of paper. I mean, some of the applications that I've sent in literally had to have been sent in multiple FedEx boxes because there were so many pieces to them. Um, we're talking probably upwards of 500, 600 pieces of paper. So it's crazy what these applications can come up to. And most commonly in this situation when we are working on a Medicaid application, we are most often working with a loved one that's hopefully been appointed as an attorney, in fact, by a power of attorney um, that gives them the power to deal with these. You know, if somebody is in a nursing home, 
odds are they don't have the capabilities to be able to contact all these institutions and do all the legwork because there is legwork to this application. As much as we try to take as much of that legwork off of the client, there are some things that we just can't do on our own. They have to go to the bank with the power of attorney and, you know, request statements. So there are just things that we unfortunately cannot do. And so this loved one is the one that we're normally working with on behalf of the person in the nursing home to go through this entire process. Some of the other things that um, MassHealth is going to look for, um, they're going to want identification, usually a photo ID, passport, something like that. Um, they want your social security card. Uh, they want to know about other health insurances that you qualify for so that um, they only have to pay for as much as they have to. Um, they want to know what your income is. So um, we don't need that yearly statement that you get from Social Security, but if you get a pension or something like that, you actually need a letter from the pension board stating exactly what your um, benefits are each week, month, whatever, however you get paid by that pension board. Um, if you have any type of life insurance or anything like that, we need to have the cash value. Um, an interesting story I have on um, the identification. So if you're uh, married, you need to prove that you're married and you need to file um, your marriage certificate I had clients in the last couple of years who never had a marriage certificate. I'm like, well, what do you mean you never had a marriage certificate? They're like, oh, we got married in the, I think it was in the 50s, at the Catholic Church, and they just gave us a piece of paper. I was like, oh, well, you that means you never went to the, the town and applied for a marriage license before getting married in the church? No, we never did that. Okay, well... This person had changed their last name. They changed their social security card. They got a passport. So I'm like, something exists somewhere that proves that you have, you know, changed your name and you got married because you have all these other identifications that come with the, the you know, with the marriage. Uh, come to find out, she might have just stumbled into all of these other pieces of identification because the only thing that existed was... Um, a copy, like a photocopy of the scroll from the Catholic church that they got married at <laughs> way wow. back in the day. So she had to actually go to the church and get them to pull out their records from the fifties to show that they were in fact married on, you know, whatever day they got married. And that was what we submitted with the mass health application. So they almost got out of it, but you wouldn't let it. <laughs> nope. Nope. <laughs> But I think, I mean, that point is is just on the money because it um, it, it goes to show that certain things, like if, if you don't have them or are unable to find them or, you know, there's hoops to jump through or there's difficulty locating them, the sooner you get a jump on that process of finding them because they are going to ask for them. Um, you submit what you can in your first attempt at documentation, but then they get to review that application and send you requests for more documentation. So um, the, the quicker that you get the jump on some of those things that are, are, are filed with um, 
cities and towns and things that can get lost in scrolls and Catholic churches from the 50s. <laughs> um, it's good to know what you need to obtain, what you have, what you need to find, and what is just lost to see literally or figuratively. <laughs> There is always that request for information, no matter how thorough of an application you can submit at the beginning. They're always just looking for a little bit more just to be more clear on different things. Um, so that request for information is always something that comes into play. I am going to just take a quick break here to just mention, you know, we've talked about a lot about Medicaid and Mass Health for these first 15 minutes. Please, if you have questions, be sure to call in to 781-834-9639. We'd love to do our best to answer them. Some of them might be too specific and nuanced, and we ask that you call and set up a meeting with our firm with Legacy Legal Planning at 781-971-5900 if you have really detailed, specific questions about your situation. Um, so I'm going to jump right back into here a little bit in regard to assets and what is allowed for somebody to have this in the nursing home and what if they're married how does that play into it so for a married couple um you are allowed to have they just jumped it up to $154,000 um which is still nothing <laughs> not nearly enough for somebody to survive on um you are allowed to have um one home um, where the spouse that does not need nursing home care can live. Um, that home cannot have equity in excess of, um, I think it's slightly under $1.1 million now. So it can be a pretty um, valuable home, but it cannot be a huge mansion or anything like that. Uh, and you're allowed to have one car of any value. So if you have an Aston Martin, or a Toyota Corolla, it matters not. Um, both of them qualify uh, for that um, non-eligibility with Medicaid. I appreciate your car choice, Liz. <laughs> <laughs> I was trying to think of what the most expensive car I could think of was to show the disparity. <laughs> a lot that comes into play with these assets and what counts and what is a countable asset when it comes to mass health does depend on if you're married or single. Um, and we have been working with a lot of clients that are single. And I think a lot of times people feel that because if you are single in a nursing home, all you can have is $2,000. So they literally count, you know, everything that you have then. And that $2,000 is the max so really, you want to be under that $2,000. And so we work with clients a lot to do some crisis planning or even pre-planning for them um, if they're not in the nursing home yet to help in that situation. Married couples have a little more flexibility. Um, and I, I mean that by little, you know, as you mentioned, <laughs> $154,000 isn't a lot for a spouse that's still at home. Um, but especially single people that are widowed or never married really should think about planning or crisis planning and, and talking to an attorney in regard to if long-term care is needed in the future for them or for a loved one. Yeah, some of the questions that we, we tend to get a lot in terms of what's counted and what's not, um, there's a lot of sort of, um, you know, misgivings out there in regard to, well, you know, they're not going to 
count my retirement assets, right? Or they're not going to count certain things. And to Liz's point earlier, not only do they want all of the financial information, but every dollar counts. Um, there's, there's, you know, there's very few things that can be excluded. Uh, you know, if your spouse is still working, you know, that's one thing. But, um, you know, we're talking just generally uh, things like IRAs and 401ks, all of those things, um, that's countable in terms of the, the spousal assets and, and what we're allowed to keep. Um, so, so keeping in mind that it really is sort of a snapshot of, of all of the assets. Um, that's one thing that we, a lot of people come into the planning thinking that those items aren't considered. They're just sort of set off to the side. And sadly, that's one thing that we, you know, we have to be the bearer of bad news that those often, you know, unless there's very few circumstances, those are most certainly countable. And as Liz had mentioned earlier tonight, there is that five-year look back. They're looking at five years of statements and and transfers. And many times we have people come in that might be thinking about pre-planning and they will kind of make a comment of, oh, well, I've been gifting because I can, you know, I can gift a certain amount. It keeps going up every year, around $18,000 to people. And that's fine. The state says I can gift. Well, the IRS and <laughs> says that in the state DOR, you know, says, okay, you can gift, but that does not come into play with Medicaid. That five-year look back applies. And as Liz alluded to earlier, that can count against you and be a possible cause for denial with with those gifts um, because they do view it as you are trying to move your money out of your name to have the state pay for your care and they're trying to minimize them needing to pay for someone's care yeah the the example we use sometimes is you know what what glasses do we have on in what way are we viewing this so-called gift to your point earlier if we're wearing our tax glasses then sure that's a-okay you can gift up to that amount and and no one no one says boo if we're wearing our medicaid mass health glasses then that is going to matter it could potentially be a problem so it really just depends on what way we're viewing that and when you're coming to us for qualifying and applying for these benefits these types of gifting um habits can be an issue um if they're a habit, maybe we, we've got some wiggle room, Liz, but otherwise, uh, you know, we've got some explaining to do. Well, another thing to think about is, you know, um, I've had people who had, you know, falls or a stroke or some type of tragic medical event that triggered the need for nursing home care. So if you um, were fine at home, um, either with a spouse or, you know, as a single person and you did not need, you know, a nursing home level of care and you were gifting monies for a consistent period of time and you can show that, you know, it was every year or, you know, maybe when you had grandchildren graduate from high school or college, you gave them a significant gift or, um, you know, when grandchildren got married or, you know, when your children bought a house or something like that, you gave them a significant gift. If we can show a consistent period of gifting and we can also show that when you were giving out these gifts, you did not need nursing home care. And then, you know, two years later, there's this triggering event that happened that now that's why you need nursing home care. These are all things that we would use in an argument to say, you know, 
you know, these gifts should not be held against this person because when they made them mass nursing homes care was not even on the horizon. It's not something that they were thinking about. They were living at home, completely able to take care of themselves. And because of something that happened, you know, multiple years later, that was an accident or, you know, they have no control over now they can no longer take care of themselves. Yeah. And these are things that as we work with clients, we, you know, lawyers call it issue spotting, but these are things that we, we kind of comb out and ask clients, you know, okay, so you've got, we see, so we're reviewing your bank statements where we're reviewing all 500 pages of five years of open and closed bank accounts, you know, um, and, and we're going through it with a fine tooth comb to try to catch what a mass health caseworker might catch and ask further questions on. So we're looking at these gifts saying, okay, we see two years ago, there's a subset of gifts here. So let's, let's dig a little deeper. Was there a habit? Do we have an argument here? So again, we, I keep touting this, but it's so important in this area, the difference between knowing what to look for, where to dig deeper and where you have legal viable arguments, um, you know, to, to indicate, no, they weren't just, you know, gifting away their money to get rid of it. This was, this was a habit. This is something that they did throughout their lifetime. And as we look through like your assets with these gift issues, we're looking through your assets for every single possible issue that there is. So, you know, if you're married, you're allowed to transfer all of the assets to your spouse who's going to still live at home without penalty. So we're going to give you advice as to, you know, how to go about that or why you should title uh, bank accounts differently you know, take one person's name off, put a different person's name on so that you're able to qualify. We're going to do the same thing with real estate, um, with, you know, any type of bank account, investment account, et cetera, that you have. We're going to go account by account and say, this is what needs to happen with this one. This is what needs to happen with this one. And, you know, give you a list of to-dos so that we can qualify as quickly as possible. That's a really... Um crucial part of it, I think. I had a client probably about six or eight months ago that the wife had gone in the nursing home a year before. Then the husband ended up also in the nursing home. And as I was going through their assets, everything was still titled jointly, which I am shocked that it wasn't caught beforehand and and that there wasn't you know that it didn't come up as an issue in regard to her eligibility but I had to warn the family of like I hope this doesn't trigger anything but this could open the door for not just dad's application now but also mom's eligibility because all of that money that was allowed to be kept by the spouse no problem but the fact that her name was still on it a year later um I, again, I was shocked that it what didn't get denied somewhere in that process anyways, because you usually need to submit proof that all the assets are out of that spouse's name. And so I really had to prepare this family for the fact of, I hope this doesn't open any doors for mom, but be prepared. Um, because unfortunately, that was a big issue. And so then we I worked with them to get mom's name off of everything. And then as we were doing the application for dad, kind of having everything in dad's name. But as since they asked for the last five years, they clearly could see, oh, three months ago, you know, mom was still on that and she is already in the nursing home and on Medicaid. And so I really had to just luckily 
things worked out, you know, and there, there are some great caseworkers that you can work with and, and, you know, get Pete go through the process and explain the real life situations of what happens. Um, but that's not always the case. And so we have to prepare our clients for also the worst case scenario of this is what could occur. Yeah. And along the lines of talking about uh, permissible transfers and being able to transfer everything to a spouse, um, you know, that's something that is, is a blessing that we can do that. <laughs> um, but it also talking about warning clients, um, there is a bit of a shock that comes when we're advising, okay, listen, to get, you know, to get your loved one qualified, we have to cash out all of these accounts that we probably, you know, under normal circumstances, you're not going to want to touch a retirement based account. But if we have to cash it out to get the cash value out of one spouse's name and into another, there's a lot of warranted resistance there. So I think, uh, you know, just kind of explaining that this under normal circumstances is not an ideal recommendation, nor would anyone ever recommend this in, in typical situations. But this is, you know, in order to qualify for mass health, this is commonplace. We're not crazy. We are, but we're not, you know, <laughs> um, these are things that we end up having to tell families. Yeah, listen, um, we have to cash out life insurance, potentially, we have to cash out retirement accounts. So that's a difficult thing to hear from an attorney that you're working with who, you know, may have been a relative stranger prior to that. So it's um, these things, if, if you have a little bit of knowledge that that's a possibility, it's just one, one thing that you're educated and equipped to kind of say, well, this is a possibility and, and we might have to do this, but we're doing it for an end result. And that tax it is going to be a lot less than private yeah. pay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, so yeah, yeah. it is worth taking the tax hit in the moment for the benefit of being qual, you know, getting qualified to not have to be paying out fifteen to sixteen thousand dollars per month. Um, so yeah. it's definitely worth doing that. And, and if you private you paid, paid <laughs> I would say if you private paid for any period of time, that is tax deductible as a medical expense. <laughs> so <laughs> we'll figure out the workarounds any mm -hmm. way we can within within the purview of the regs. <laughs> Well, I think this is a perfect place to take our break. Thank you for listening to Legacy Legal Live on WMEX Boston, and we'll be back soon. And welcome back this Wednesday evening to Legacy Legal Live. We are Michelle Reed, Kendra O'Toole, and Elizabeth Caruso. We are from Legacy Legal Planning. Our firm is in Norwell, and we are estate planning and elder law attorneys. Tonight, um, we invite you to call in with your questions. Kendra, if you want to rifle off the number for us, and we'll see, I'll do our best to answer them if you can uh, you call in. Absolutely. It is 781-834-9639. So if you're just joining us tonight, we are going over um, sort of high level because you could drill down on this for days on end, um, some rules regarding uh, Medicaid planning for long-term care. And when we say Medicaid in Massachusetts, we are referring to um, the state program MassHealth, uh, and they just love to use that word to confuse us. In lots of times, folks will hear MassHealth and think health insurance, but in our lovely state, it's also relative to Medicaid benefits and long-term care planning. So we ended off our last half hour talking about um, transferring assets and ways to qualify between spouses and things of that nature. So we talked about assets that we could keep. 
but let's get a little bit into income. Um, what can a spouse have for income? What can they keep? What does our, our lovely uh, nursing home and Commonwealth leave us with on the monthly basis? <laughs> so generally when a person goes into a nursing home, their income becomes like a copay for lack of better terms, to the nursing home. It is their patient paid amount. It's it's what they pay to the nursing home. Out of their income, if they get $1,000 a month, they get to keep a whopping $72.80 per month for themselves. And, then the rem- <laughs> and you the even remainder- get your nails done for that now. I mean. <laughs> right? Well, so I, I had I mean- a client that loved to get her hair done every week. And it wasn't enough for she she got her, you know, blowout, whatever. And to get that done every week, the 7280 wasn't enough. Luckily, she did have, you know, we had to keep her under the two thousand dollars as we, we talk about. Um, and so spending that money helped keep her under. And we had a little wiggle room of money of funds still in there. So she was able to get her hair done weekly, but they feel, you know, the state feels we're paying for your care, your food, your lodging, you have everything you need. So that 7280 should be enough to cover if you need some new, you know, clothes once in a while or get your hair done, that type of thing. But it really is very minimal. Um, And depending on the person, some people in a nursing home, you know, some are still have capacity and can do things of, you know, read books or, or listen to audiobooks or whatever. And nowadays, all these things cost. And so that $2,000 that they're allowed to have, and then they're 7280. It's really not much for somebody that is in the nursing home. But that's what they look at in that regard. What's amazing to me is that, you know, I've been doing this 14 years. And I, I did it for a little bit before, you know, when I was in law school too. They've never moved that number no. up. It's been $72.80 for as long as I've been practicing, which is bananas considering I think that the spousal allowance when I first started was in like $119,000. So that has been moved up a lot, but not what you get to keep. Doesn't matter so that just, inflation you know- is spiked. I was just going to say, be mindful that everything else has increased due to inflation, but our, our whopping arbitrary 7280 is just stuck in the mud. And really, mm-hmm. the, you know, patients in a nursing home do need things. And I mean, you send things to laundry and things get lost. So then you're needing to buy new clothes. And yeah, it's not cheap to be able to get these items for them and so you you do sometimes get we we have times where a lot of times the loved ones are just paying for it you know to be sure that their their mother has the comfy pajamas that they like that aren't you know might might cost a little bit more and but they want them to be comfortable where they're living and and have some things that they still love um but that is like a copay to the nursing home yeah and to that point you know on one end it's for for so many residents it's it's not enough it's not enough for for upkeep it's not enough for enjoyment and i mean if you want to get your hair your nails done weekly by all means so in that regard you know sometimes we we are having loved ones supplement um and on the opposite spectrum um if you're sort of no must no fuss very bare bones very few needs you don't you don't need much Uh, one thing that we you know when working with clients 
and sometimes this is this is you know obviously beyond the approval of the application we're also working with them to make sure that this 7280 as at a, at a snail's pace does not creep up to put your loved one over the the assets we talked about uh, you know a single person being able to have 2000 we want to kind of keep it below that like Kendra mentioned before but sometimes um, the 7280 just kind of staying in the account per month can actually put them above and beyond. So you do want to keep a pulse on that if you are a caregiver or if you are helping a loved one who's in long-term care and you're the one monitoring the financials, keep a pulse on that as well. Now, if you're a married couple, it is possible and it all depends on the numbers. So I'm not going to get into some of the nitty gritty math with this, but depending on the spouse that's in the nursing home and how much they make and then the spouse that's at home, how much they get an income per month. There is sometimes a possibility that the spouse at home might be able to keep some of the income of the spouse that's in the nursing home. But those are, there's calculations and specific numbers that MassHealth has for that to be determined. Um, but that is a possibility if the spouse at home really has minimal income and does not have enough to pay the regular upkeep of the home in regard to some utilities, real estate taxes, insurance, uh, mortgage, if there is one. Um, so them being able to pay for some of those general upkeeps of life. Yeah, and um, I think it's important to note that the when you have a married couple, the spouse who is at home their income does not count towards any type of a calculation whatsoever. Um, it's only the income of the person who actually needs the nursing home care. And um, then they do the calculation. Um, when we submit the application, we put in all the evidence for the utility bills and everything that Kendra was saying as far as like the costs of staying home. And then they, you know, spit out this, okay, so you're allowed to keep X hundred dollars of the spouse in the nursing home's income in order to make sure that we have not made the spouse at home destitute. Um, there is a little bit of wiggle room if you actually have the um, the need for it. Um, I have done an appeal before where the um, spouse at home was not living in a home that they owned. They actually rented an apartment um, they rented an apartment in a town where it was expensive and their rent was $3,000 a month. And then they had all of their expenses on top of that. Um, and this is a situation where um, the wife was actually the main breadwinner and she was the one who went into the nursing home. And, you know, we had to argue that we needed more of the wife's income to supplement the husband's income because he was not able to, his income didn't even cover the rent <laughs> um, on top of, you know, utilities and they had a car and, you know, all of those expenses, all of that. Um, so we did go to an appeal process and we were actually able to up there the amount that he was able to keep in order to stay in his home by showing that, you know, this was not some type of a luxury item it was just the cost of an apartment in the town that they happened to live in. And it's just that apartments are expensive in this town. Um, so there, there's all, if you have the evidence, there's always arguments to be made to continue the status quo for the, um, the spouse who's still living at home. 
and and things like what Liz just mentioned uh, can make the difference between those who work, you know, very specifically in this field of elder law and long-term care and Medicaid applications. Um, these are things that um, are, are not widely shouted out by the rooftops. So, you know, knowing what, what you know through years of experience, uh, these are things that we're making sure to include in our requests and our applications and knowing that we can appeal under specialized circumstances. So it's not the nursing home's job to um, go down to these nuances and the exceptions. You know, they're there, they have resources, but you know, it, it, it only goes so far. So working with a professional in this capacity uh, truly does make all the difference um, because it, so much in this area is you don't know what you don't know and the information out there is here, there and everywhere. Um, and sort of to that point, not knowing what you don't know, ways to pre-plan and try, you know, as we talked about at the beginning of the show, having these one-off meetings just at the beginning, if we think potentially there, there's potential in the future, near future or not, for a loved one to need care, meeting with, a, with an attorney. Um, but some of the things in the documents that we're looking for and hoping that exist when we meet with you, and if they don't, we're getting them as soon as possible, Um Oftentimes, as Kendra mentioned earlier, we are working with a loved one of a family member who's needing long-term care. So when we're working with them, there are certain things that potentially could bar us from working together if we don't have them. One of the most simplistic documents that we that we work with and, and, and constantly say that everyone needs is a power of attorney. Because as a family member of a loved one, if we're if you're signing an application on a loved one's behalf, you have to have the legal authority to do it. So one of the biggest pre-planning documents, the most important in these in this sort of process is having a valid power of attorney that gives your loved one the ability to work with us on your behalf if perhaps you're incapacitated or unable to, to work with us on a regular basis. Um, and then just making sure that your estate planning documents are updated accordingly, that you can find them. You know, we have a lot of clients with trusts out there, very old ones, and perhaps they have property in a trust. Part of the application process is, you know, where where, where did your property live? Is it in a trust? And whether or not they want us to take it out of trust. There's lots of um, sort of nuances that go in there. And then in terms of other sort of protective documents, what do you ladies sort of seeing in terms of, um, you know, for pre-planning? So sometimes in regard to pre-planning, people might ask about an irrevocable trust. I think that that's what a lot of people hear on, you know, either the radio or TV and the commercials for different financial don't advisors. Them, don't knock the radio. <laughs> <laughs> um, but an irrevocable trust is a tool that is a very specific and nuanced type of trust. And it needs to be a Medicaid irrevocable trust because there are also different types of irrevocable trusts um, to help get past hopefully the five-year look back and make an asset non-countable. But these, this type of trust is, we generally see it being used with a primary residence and it is very nuanced and there are lots of pros and cons to it. And so it's definitely requires sitting down with an attorney looking at your exact situation as to whether or not an irrevocable trust is something that could be beneficial for you. Yeah, you really need to um, know when you need to pull the trigger on an irrevocable trust. Um, it's really when you're comfortable giving away that control 
as part of the, you know, irrevocable trust planning is giving, you know, the control to somebody else. Um, when you know what your future kind of looks like, and I mean, I know nobody has a crystal ball or anything like that, but, you know, you have an idea on what your retirement looks like, you know, what your costs are going to be. And if you can take a chunk of money or your you know, equity in your house or whatever and factor, take that out of the equation and you still have enough to live on and, you know, comfortably, then maybe we can, you know, work that ir irrevocable trust into your estate plan. Um, sadly, I see people far too often wait too long to do irrevocable trusts. They wait until they're, you know, one person is in a nursing home and the spouse at home decides to do it once they're qualified for Medicaid or, um, you know, they wait until one spouse is sick or something like that. And um, obviously you don't want to do it too soon. Um, but at the same time, you don't want to wait too long. So everybody's happy medium is a different time frame, but it's always good to be thinking about it. And, you know, to pull the trigger earlier rather than later. And so, as is mentioned, it is used to, you know, take some nugget of your assets and and to try to help make something non-countable. But then that also means that if you end up in the nursing home and you still have funds above the allowable amount, whether you're married and it's above that 154000 or you're single and it's above the $2,000 that um, you're allowed to have, there are things, which I know we've alluded to a little bit at the beginning of this show, but there is spend down. You know, there are things that they do allow you to do to help bring down the assets that you have. Um, one common one that we see many clients do is prepay for their funeral. They create, an, it's an irrevocable contract with the funeral home and they prepay for their funeral. And this is something that MassHealth does allow you to do, which is great because that's an ex a very expensive thing for loved ones to need to pay. And so to be able to prepay that beforehand and have your assets to be used for that is 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 really a great thing to be sure to have that taken care of for your loved ones. And that can be for both spouses, not just the spouse going into the nursing home. Um, so you can do both spouses funeral arrangements. And the way that funerals cost these days, I mean, that might be a $25,000, $30,000 spend down if you're doing, you know, full funerals with wakes and the full burial and all of that and it entirely depends on you know what you want to happen you know at your end of life and that's you know how it gets displayed but um you know that can be a big chunk to get you below that threshold for qualification another one is they do allow you to have a burial account this is a specific account with a bank that is called a burial account you can only have fifteen hundred dollars in it um, you know, to start it out, you can't, you, you don't add to it. You can't um, make it more than that. And this is also an allowable account that can be used to also help with the burial expenses. And that's another figure that hasn't changed since I started doing this. It's been $1,500 for yep. 14 plus years. And 
you know, the price of everything has gone up. I remember um, when I first started, I tell clients that you can use this for literally anything that isn't already prepaid. So if you have a family member that lives in California and you want to make sure they're at the funeral, you can buy their airline tickets with it. You know, it can pay for flowers. It can pay for the most popular thing that it usually pays for, I think, is like the bereavement luncheon after um, funeral services and things like that. But it can pay for just about anything. But what $1,500 bought when this law was created is far less than what $1,500 buys today. Yeah, and we're I getting think- a very limited menu, pasta and salad only. In this <laughs> <day>. <laughs> Now, too, is that you might have a fully, you know, prepaid contract with the funeral home. But at the same time, there's certain expenses there that go up that may not be, as you mentioned, flowers and stuff. They they don't they're not the ones providing the flowers. So sometimes that might cost a little bit more obituary publications in the newspaper. Those costs are just astronomical these days. They are so much more expensive than they used to be. Oh, my God. <laughs> and then another one that we see often is um, between it seems like most of the cemeteries do it between November 15th and March 15th. If somebody passes away then and you are burying them during that time frame, they're charging another 500 or so dollars because of the ground being frozen. And so that is more work. They're charging an extra amount. And that's a hefty amount that isn't usually in that initial contract because we don't know when you could pass away. So they don't normally include that in that initial contract. I'm going to start saying I'd like to prepay for uh, frozen ground <laughs> so <laughs> to make sure that it doesn't fall upon a family member. Right. So we got a bill after for my grandmother's. They said, oh, they didn't advise us of this and hers was prepaid and everything, too. And then they sent us a bill and said, oh, this was because you buried her when the ground was frozen. Her funeral was March. I was just going to say this. It was three days before their date. And we were like, we we, could have waited three days. Like, (laughs) we didn't know. They didn't even advise us of it. We had no idea. And this is what I learned of that. And then. So I didn't pay for my grandmother's funeral. Clearly, I didn't. I had nothing to do with that part of it. But she was buried in February and it was 65 degrees the day she was buried. So I so hope that they charged this fee that somebody actually argued it because there was any no good lawyer that... would be right on that. Uh-uh. Pull out the and <laughs> it may not have been paid. Um, <laughs> we oh. we might've uh, made a couple of phone calls, like you said, because it was three days before the date. And it's like, we weren't even informed. We had no idea. Mm-hmm. We have to do a whole show on on some of these, you know, kind of wonky things. But, are, you know, they, they they sound morbid. But, hey, we live in this world. But, you know, some useful tips, useful tips for 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 uh, the other side. Oh, one uh-huh. thing I do want to mention about prepaid funerals, a lot of people are extraordinarily wary because I think this is a thing before our time thing. Um, back in the day, um Funeral homes used to be a lot less regulated as far as their finances. I have a theory that I think a lot of them were a front for the mob. That's <laughs> another whole show. Probably not wrong. It is a whole other story. <laughs> but I know that I, a lot of clients that I have are like, so you want me to pay 
$15,000 to this funeral home. How do I know they're still going to be in business when I die? Well, the state of Massachusetts has an answer for you now. Now, when you prepay a funeral, all of your money goes into a burial trust that is managed by the state of Massachusetts, whether that makes you feel good or not was again, a whole nother show, but no, that is an excellent point. (laughs) It's insured so that if the funeral home you chose goes out of business, then the dollar for dollar that you put into that funeral home can then be applied to the services at any other funeral home in the state. So your money that you put in is not at risk of being lost because you've given it to, you know, a funeral home A as opposed to funeral home B. Yeah, I mean, that's a that's an excellent point to make in, in, in terms of, you know, we're, we're sometimes we're the ones advising, listen, you, we got to do some spend down. So when we're telling a client to essentially shell out fifteen, sixteen, seventeen thousand dollars for things, plus go over here and do X, Y, Z, um, that 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 add some relief there I think um and and continuing on things that we're going to potentially give you permission to shell out money on um you know if you're married and you have a spouse at home there are some things that you can do to upkeep the home so if you have been um you know kind of dragging your feet on 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 upgrades to the roof and it's a necessity that's a permissible spend down um you know we're not talking go ahead and put in a pool that's that's not what we're talking about but we're you know things for general upkeep and structure of the home um, those are things that you can go ahead and and do and use your money they give you permission to use your own money on those things (laughs) without saying no you can't do that paying off mortgage or a home equity line of credit you know that way that's paid off that's one less expense for the spouse that's at home and it's bringing down the assets for for the qualification Um, So we are getting a little tight on time. So I think one good thing to just quickly kind of touch on and put out there is for the spouses that are still at home, it is crucial that they are reviewing their estate plan and probably doing updates because most spouses will name each other as attorney in fact for power of attorney for their healthcare proxy um, for their will and trust, leaving to their benefit. So these are documents that you want to be sure to sit down with your attorney and review because you're going to want to name a new primary agent and a backup agent. Your spouse is in the nursing home. They're not able to make these decisions for you. So now who's going to take care of you? So these are crucial updates. And then also the planning on the back end of if something were to happen to you first and not the spouse that's in the nursing home, what's happening with your assets there. Yeah. And, you know, just real quickly too, uh, oftentimes we want to leave our funds to our spouse and to care for them. But if they're qualified in a nursing home, care being paid for, we've done all that work to qualify them. We don't then want to, you know, God forbid something happens to us, pass away and leave them all the assets that we just transferred to us to get our spouse qualified, which then turns around and puts all those assets right back on their side. Um, so so making sure that you are updating and, and planning for that. There are, we won't go into that, but there are ways to plan to take care of your spouse in a particular way that we're not going to disqualify them for benefits. All right. So we hit a lot tonight regarding Medicaid mass health, the application process, the different nuances of income and spousal income 
and spend down for single and married. And so we hope that this has allowed you to start thinking about either your own, um, you know, situation and where you foresee things may currently be for you and maybe in the near future. And also if you're a caregiver, any of your loved ones that maybe you're taking care of now, taking some of these action steps now and meeting with an attorney that, that works with clients in an elder law can really make a difference in the moment when you do end up in this situation. And so we hope that it has really opened the door and opened your eyes a little bit more to the process and to some action items that maybe you should take for yourself or your loved ones in the future. And just a quick resource for those, uh, you know, if you're not in our area, but if you're if you're in the Norwell area, we or all of Massachusetts, we're happy to help. But I um, you know, if you're tuning in from elsewhere, um, NALA, National Academy of Elder Law Attorneys, or in Massachusetts, it's, you know, Massachusetts Mass NALA, um, there is a plethora of attorneys on there who are just you know extremely well versed. So that's a great resource. Um, if if you if you can't call us, but if you can, please do. We're happy to help. Uh, but it, it is a uh, a fantastic resource for you to find um, some qualified attorneys to talk to and just check in on your situation. We hope that you have enjoyed our show tonight. Again, we are the attorneys from Legacy Legal Planning in Norwell. We can be found on Facebook, Instagram, at Legacy Legal Planning. Our website is LegacyLegalPlanning.com. You can give us a phone call at 781-971- five nine zero zero and feel free to set up a a consultation it can be just a you know a 15 minute phone call as well just to kind of get some more information if you have a question that you're lingering on so thank you so much for listening to us this evening and we look forward to being back with you again next week here on wmbx boston The content presented in this radio show, hosted by the Attorneys of Legacy Legal Planning, LLC, is intended for educational purposes only. It does not constitute legal advice, and listeners are strongly advised not to rely on the information provided for specific legal decisions. Legacy Legal Planning, LLC, and its attorneys are not responsible for any actions taken based on the content of this show. For personalized legal advice, listeners are encouraged to consult with a duly licensed attorney in their respective state.